And I'll tell you, like, the people I most want to be in conversation with are people who make me feel normal for the stuff I feel shame about. Hi, welcome to the Big Self Podcast. I'm your host, Chad Prevost. And I'm your host, Shelly Prevost. Shelly and I are always on the lookout for those books that offer us depth, give us specific takeaways and challenges, and also inspire us. Oh, and do all this without shaming us to do better or else we suck? And today's guests have executed on a book full of ideas that does just that. How do we help others make changes they actually want and need to make? Well, drawing on decades of experience, helping leaders, employees, and others to change, Peter Bregman and Howie Jacobson offer a straightforward, proven, and repeatable four-step process for helping people make meaningful changes, and we get a taste of that in our conversation today. And be sure and stay tuned to the end for our Big Self Takeaway. Peter Bregman, Howie Jacobson, welcome to the Big Self Show. Hey guys, welcome. Hey, so nice to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're thrilled to have you both here. I just told you I cannot wait for this conversation. Uh, the new book you all have out, I, I can't imagine a better time uh, to put this out in the world. So we're, we just want to jump in there and have a conversation around it. Yeah, I was when I even first just saw the title, You Can Change Other People, The Four Steps to Help Your Colleagues, Employees, Even Family, up their game, I was immediately taken because, you know, a lot of the emphasis that we've been putting on is like, hey, if you want to change anything, start with yourself. I first want to ask you all to set this up a little bit. Why did you write this book? What's the impetus for, because uh, I've told people a lot, you can't change other people. So right. how did you all come to think of this and research this for the book? So I'm going to let Howie answer that, but I, I just want to speak to what you just said, which I love. Every time, Shelly, you say to someone, hey, you can't change other people. You can only change them. You're trying to change them. Oh, my gosh. Right? Every so time true. you say that, you're trying to get them to do something differently than they're doing. So you don't even believe it yourself. Like, we believe we can change people. Whoa. The problem is we do it in, in the wrong way. Like We do it in ways that alienate us from them as opposed to supporting them. So that's, that's you know in one way, that's why we wrote the book. Because nobody believes that you can't change other people, especially the people who tell us that we can't change other people. And I myself have done that as well. <laughs> That's great. So not, That's so I'm true. Not, I'm not pointing a finger at you without pointing a finger at myself also. Thank you. Howie? <laughs> yeah. And before, before I answer the question, I'll just say like, you know, everyone says start with yourself. Well, we say that too. We, we, just, we just say don't stop with yourself. Yes. So... so the book came out of, um, I was assisting Peter at one of his uh, coach training sessions where he trains coaches to be better coaches. And I attend those whenever I can um, because I'm not the perfect coach yet, I discovered. So, you know, it's a great, uh, it's a great gym for me to get better, to get feedback. And at one of these in April of 2019, Peter announced to the group that this was going to be his last one ever. And and I had what can only be described as a very genteel temper tantrum. And so, like, <laughs> this stuff is too good to not keep getting out in the world. Like, I understand, like, you know, this was like 20 coaches, 30 coaches at a time. It might not be the best use of, of your time and resources or where you want to take your business. But it, this would it would be a crime to, like, have this material not out there in the world. So. Uh, like with many temper tantrums, it had, had unintended consequences, and one of which was Peter said, <laughs> okay, what are you going to do about it? And so we started writing a book on coaching, and the book itself, you know, it grew, it swelled to hundreds and hundreds of thousands of words, and then eventually it um, it was pared down in in size, but it grew in scope, where we wanted mm. to say, like, this isn't just for coaches, this is really a process that anyone can use. And we, you know, we want to live in a world where we all have the tools and the desire to make each other better, to help each other, to help us live the lives that we want to live, because it's a hard time in the world. And we need all mm -hmm. of us all hands on deck. So I think that's, that's where the, you know, the, the seed and the germination of, of the book came from. 
Wow. Well, fantastic. That's really interesting. Yeah, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of words, I think, would have been too long. Yeah, Chad's a publisher, so he's probably (laughs) thinking about, oh, my gosh. But I like the idea of... (laughs) Chad, I'll tell you you the story of that, too, which is that we wrote the book, and and I've I've written a lot of books, and I've never... I mean, I'm I'm one of the few authors, probably, that has always delivered my book on time. I've never never, uh, given a book in late. And it was about two and a half weeks... Uh, before we had to give the book in, and it was about 90,000 words. And I said to Howie, this isn't a good book. Like this is, this is not a good book. Like we're, we've worked, I know we've worked really hard on it, but it's not good yet. Wow. And I called my publisher and I said the same thing. And I said, look, you know, I've worked with you before. Like, you know, I get stuff in on time. We need more time. And, and we, he, he was generous and he gave us more time. Of course, he negotiated. Like, I'll give you more time here if you review the copy edits in 48 hours. <laughs> but he was great. Yeah. He was great. And, and, uh, and we literally, in about four weeks, cut the book in half from 90,000 words to 45,000 words. And we had a commitment to 70,000 words, but it was just better, shorter. <laughs> and, uh, and he, uh, again, you know, thanks to Richard Naramore, who's my who's our, our publisher and editor, he was like, this is great. This is better. Let's go with it. Okay. Yeah, Tider's often better. That's right. Oh, yeah. So yeah. I want you all, let's just uh, go into the book. I would love for you all to share the four-step alley-oop model, the framework that you all use and go through in this book uh, for how to help others on their own change and uh, just walk us through a little bit of, of the the theory around the alley-oop model. I love that. Sure. And Howie, why don't you describe alley-oop? It was your stroke mm-hmm. of brilliance, and uh, and so you should own that. Okay, cool. I, I own it. It's, um, it's a mnemonic for the four steps. An ally is the first step to shift from critic to ally. And the other three steps are outcome, opportunity, and plan. So an alley-oop is the pass in basketball that sets your teammate up for a slam dunk. And alley-oop is the way to remember the four steps. Clever. So tell us, go through those four steps. Yeah, what's the ally, from critic to ally? So I tend to say this about each step, but the first step is the most important step. (laughs) We might say that about the second, third, and fourth also. But... So often, almost always, when we want to help someone change, we approach it, whether we mean to or not, as a critic. We come in and like organizationally, this is institutionalized. Performance reviews are a tool of criticism. Like, you know, like uh, anybody that I ever have given as a manager and as a leader performance review, you know, I'll tell them, look, focus on the strengths as much as the weaknesses. Like, let's really... Right. They're like, okay, great. I know that I know what I'm good at. What do I need to get better? Mm -hmm. And, 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 and even people who want to hear what they want to get good, what they want to get better at. It's, it's very hard to hear. Like you immediately go into the stance that you go in when someone's critical. And if you imagine even physically, if someone's coming at you with, with something that feels at all dangerous or at all a risk to you, or like you put your hands up, you, 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 you block yourself from them. That is what we do when we feel like someone approaches us as a critic. So, you know, those faded words of like, hey, can I uh, give you some feedback, right? Like, who oh wants gosh, to I say that all the time, right? Yeah. And, and Usually to Chad, good hey, can I give you some oh, feedback? I it's, I've thought about this in work environments. It's always like, okay, feedback is never a good thing. The only time feedback is a good thing is occasionally in rock and roll. Right. Some cool. <laughs> but otherwise. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, so how do you make the magic happen? Yeah. So so the first thing you do is you approach the conversation as an ally, not as a critic. And so what does that mean? Mm-hmm. The first thing is you have to do some house cleaning of yourself. Right. And mm-hmm. this is the part where Howie said we actually do start with ourselves. The first thing is to um, to feel your positive intent. Whenever we're angry or frustrated or annoyed or like at any point that the emotion that comes up that we want to give people feedback, it's often what we would prescribe as a negative or ascribe as a negative emotion. Behind just about every negative emotion is a positive intent. So if I'm angry or annoyed or frustrated, 
if I go one step down, it's because there's something I care about. It's because I care about you or I love you or I care about an outcome that we're trying to achieve or there's some positive intent behind my wanting. If I don't care at all about you, I'd like you to screw up. Like, good for you. Make, I don't want to give you feedback. I want you to be, you know, I want you to run into problems. But if I, if I actually want to share the feedback, and maybe I'm frustrated or whatever, but underlying that is some kind of care. So the first thing that we say is get in touch with that. Get in touch with the place where you want something positive for either the person or the situation. Then the second thing we say is get in touch with what their positive intent might be. You don't have to be right, but everybody acts in ways that are reasonable to them. Nobody's acting in a way that seems like you might think it's unreasonable. If you ever think in your head, how could that person have done that, right? Or how could they, like, there's a reason that, that is actually positive and productive. They're not, most people don't go around trying to be jerks. Like, they, they're, they're acting in a way that is trying to get something accomplished that's important to them, right? So take a minute after you get in touch with your positive intent to get in touch with their positive intent. What might be important to them that they're trying? You know, I can give you an example where someone, let's imagine someone's on your team and, and they're disruptive and they're frustrated and, and they interrupt people and they speak over you. And that's the same thing as interrupting people. Okay. And, and so, so they do that and you're, you know, frustrated and angry and you're like, you know, I just want this person off my team. Okay. So before I go there, let me think, okay, so what is my positive intent? Like, I, I, I don't want them to be disruptive. Well, that's the positive side of the negative intent. But if it was a positive intent, like, I would actually like them to be supportive members of the team. I would like mm-hmm. them to, you know, uh, contribute in ways that are positive. Great. What might their intent be? Well, I don't know for sure, because I haven't talked to them, but maybe they want to be heard. Or maybe they feel like they've got important stuff to say that's not being heard. Maybe they feel like they're dismissed too often. Okay, so now I've done both of those. The third step of this first step, like the third piece of it, is to get permission to have the conversation. That's critical. And we have a formula. We call it the permission formula. Mm. Empathize, express confidence, ask permission, right? Ultimately, the reason we need to do this, and this is an important underlying foundation of all this, is people don't resist change. They resist being changed. So we choose to change all the time, right? We choose to do things. You guys got together. You started a podcast. I don't know what else. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to take guesses. But there's all these changes that you did willingly and openly because you wanted to. But if I try to change you, you're going to fight that. Yeah, I love that premise of your idea. Yes. Thank you. And so so we got to get permission. So we empathize. Hey, um, I, I can see how you're struggling uh, on this team to get heard. And, and it, it, it feels like that's hard to happen. And by the way, if you can, I would say this. And I could see how I'm a part of that. I could see how I shut you down. Um, I know you have a lot to add and a lot of value. Are you willing to talk with me about maybe how to make that happen on the team? So I'm empathizing with their experience. I'm expressing confidence in them. All of it true. And then I'm asking them permission to engage in the conversation. Once that. they say yes, we're off and running. I like that the way you frame that. Would you be willing to talk to me about dot, dot, dot? Permission. That seems Yeah, important. I think that's, and that's where that agency comes in, which I think when we kind of clamp down on our own idea of what should happen for that person, all it, personal agency goes out the door. So to ask that permission exactly. in that way, I think is really, could be very powerful for people. Yeah. And by the way, I've gotten a no to that question, especially mm. when I do this with family, right? Mm. <laughs> like with my daughter, mm. you know, I, I notice something and I empathize, express confidence and ask permission. And she said, no. <laughs> and here's what's really important. I said, okay, mm-hmm. it's That's up right. to her. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. really up to her. So I said, okay, if you ever want to, I'm happy to talk with you about it. And the fact that I was okay with her putting up that boundary and saying no made it possible later that afternoon for her to come back to me and go, hey, I would like to have that conversation with you now. Now it was on her terms. She was the one saying it. She owned it. Great. And if she had never come back to me, that's her call also. 
right? So yeah. we have to be able to be willing to accept the no when we're an ally. Releasing that outcome. I think that's probably a little bit harder at work, right. uh, but I still think possible. I don't know, it's hard in each case. No, I think, yeah, I think it's still possible to say, well, then when you're ready to have this conversation, um, I'd love to have it. I'm ready with you. Well, and Shelly, your point is good. Your point is really good. Howie, why don't you talk to at work? Like, how do you... Yeah. How do you do this at work when you might be accountable for their outcomes? Yeah. So it's, we're not saying, oh, well, I have no, you know, they said they didn't want to talk to me about it. So I just have to keep putting up with whatever it is, right? If you're a manager, if you are responsible for certain outcomes and you need, you know, in, in a, a hierarchical uh, setting where there's clear, you know, responsibilities, you do have more leverage that you don't just have to say, oh, well, the, the, the formula didn't work today. I'll just keep, you know, focus on something else. There's a difference, though, between compelling them to have this conversation or compelling them to change in a particular way and holding your own boundaries. So one of the examples in the book is someone um, who's supposed to get a particular report to their manager by such and such a date and says, well, I'm not going to be able to get it to you because somebody else didn't get me what I need. And, the, you know, for permission formula, would you like to think this through? No, no, there's nothing I can do. And then the response from the manager is, well, you know what? Um, you don't have to talk about it with me. That said, I still expect the report on my desk by the deadline. Mm -hmm. right. So, so we're not, we're not, we're not abdicating responsibility for the things we have responsibility for. We're just saying like you, you can't do this against other people's will and you're right. not going to get their best if they're being, you know, dragged kicking and screaming into a conversation that's supposed to be productive, creative, and generative. Mm. One of my favorite words is nonetheless, because it can do all this good empathy and like connecting and I'm getting permission nonetheless. And it works for parenting too. Nonetheless, this is the, the boundary or this is the expectation or this is what needs to happen. So uh, yeah, I can help you with that. But nonetheless, here's what needs to happen. So talk a little bit about the, the so we talked about the ally. Talk about the OOP, the O-O-P. Walk us well, through we're that. Still, we're still in the middle of part one, right? So we're still we're still in one. There's multi steps within one, and we talked about a potential hang up in it, which is the permission part. But I would assume that usually people give you permission, right? Uh, absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's it, when you empathize and when you express confidence, and you and you and this is important. You really you, like you've done the positive intent part for yourself, so you're not coming off with the energy of an aggressor. You're coming off with the energy of, of a helper um, that uh, often they will say, yeah, uh, are almost always they will say, yeah. That's and, what I would say. And by the way, the, the way you carry yourself through the other steps deepens their yes, right? So they might be a hesitant yes, like, <laughs> yeah, I'll talk to you about it. I don't know fully that I trust you yet, but I'll, I'll try it. Uh, and, then, and then they will... Um, you know, and then and then they will often, you know, kind of buy into it more and more as you're more engaged. Right. So imagine they just said yes. And your first response then is, OK, great. What the heck were you thinking? Right. Like you've just thrown away <laughs> all the goodwill you've you've created, all the all the openings. So instead, we want we want to keep the positivity rolling. And we want to, again, the feedback is looking at what's not worked or what's worked in the past, but we, we're, we're only interested in changing the future. We just want, we're trying mm -hmm. to create something better. So the, the future is the outcome. So we want to engage with them on like, what do you want to happen? What would, what would make you excited? What would be a positive? And the reason we want, to, we want to get to an energizing outcome is that very often people think about a problem just in terms of, I got to get rid of the problem. So I got to run away from it. I got to, you know, beat it with a stick until it can't move anymore. I've got to ignore it until it's no longer in my sights. And so what that gets us is from like a negative back to zero. But mm -hmm. typically, problems are, and we'll get to this in step three, um, a problem is a sign that's that of something larger. 
And so when we ask, like, what do you really want to have happen here? The problem may end up being totally irrelevant the, or the problem may be a clue to how to get that thing. So by focusing on, on the outcome, we continue to build this, the, the rapport. We continue to help defuse any shame, defensiveness, because now they're looking forward towards something they want. And just in terms of our brains, when we're in fight or flight, we are scanning the environment for threat. When we are sort of calm and relaxed and, and, and socially engaged with another mammal, then we can be creative. It's like now we're looking for opportunities. We're looking for food. We're looking for mates. We're looking for all the good stuff rather than only being focused or, or having our attentions entirely hijacked by, uh, by threat. So that's why we say, so what, what's the outcome that you want? Yeah, I think as you guys uh, have pointed out, it's, dece it's deceptively easy, but I think it's easily overlooked. Thinking of the outcome, that tell what story are we trying to tell together? I, I, I really see how that shifts from, from step one to step two. So before we go to step two. Oh, step three. three uh, yeah, I want to, Howie, you just mentioned shame. Um, and I'm, I wouldn't just just a stop here for a minute if we could and just talk about that um because i i i think you all both believe that shame kind of hangs us up a little bit when we're attempting to to change we want to change uh we even like have an outcome that is desired but that shame man that triggers us and that really does put roadblocks up so i'm curious just kind of if you could share a little bit about how you think about shame in changing um, and when we feel that and experience that, what do we do with it? Sure. Uh, we're both well acquainted with shame, uh, for better <laughs> or worse. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, shame, like we'll, we'll do anything not to feel shame. Mm -hmm. Like shame is an intolerable, uh, feeling and, and, you know, shame is, is personal. It's like about not what I've done, but who I am. And we go into that very quickly, even if someone tells us it's not about who you are. You know, like this thing, uh, uh, my mother-in-law was a deacon uh, in, in the Episcopal Church, and she used to say, you know, like, love the sinner, hate the sin. And I used to say, yeah, it doesn't read that way. Mm -hmm. You know, like, like <laughs> it doesn't it feel doesn't. that way. Like, <laughs> it just doesn't feel that way. Right. Like, yeah. it, that's what I meant by read that way. Not it doesn't read that way in the, but it doesn't, it doesn't read right. that way to the recipient. That's right. Right. Like, it just doesn't like, you know, you can have great intentions, but nah. Um, so, so it's, my mother-in-law was awesome, by the way. I don't want to malign my mother-in-law in any way, just to be clear. Um, <laughs> for the but, record. But it's, for the record, for the record. Uh, but but shame, you know, and, and there's a reason shame is used culturally, because it's a way of keeping people within the group, right? It's like, mm -hmm. you be this way, or you will be, you know, dismissed and, and, and expunged from this group. And that's a life or death situation. So it really feels like we're death. So we will do anything. And so the easiest things to do, right, are to uh, deny the source of the shame, or to blame other people or to be defensive. Because if I don't, if I'm not responsible for this, then there's no reason for me to feel shame. And if you look at what the process does, and this is true with all four of the steps, it's taking what is generally handled as a um, negative, uh, a problem, an issue, you know, a criticism, and turning it as a positive. So we're not looking at being critics. We're looking at being allies. We're not looking at... Uh, problems we're looking at outcomes you know it's not like okay so you know it's not that what how we just finished describing is it's not what you don't want what do i want like what can i what can i look towards we're not looking at the past as much as we're looking at the future i have this conversation with clients mm -hmm. every day which is you could get down on them for every for some other for some person you're having a hard time with for everything that they've done wrong none of it matters it's all a sunk cost all you care about is from now to the future. So you could acknowledge the past. Mm. I would actually do my best to celebrate everything that's happened in the past that you can celebrate and now talk about, you know, the future. Where are we headed? What do we have to do? People are much more engaged in a future-focused conversation than a past-focused conversation, which drives them to shame. So I, I am one of these people, and I think Howie is too, we don't feel like there is anything really positive 
about shame. And we would like to do everything that we can to not engage with people in a way that incites shame in any way, yeah. to the extent that we can. Yeah, I'll, I'll say that I yeah. think there are people in the world who should feel shame, and the irony is that they don't, and the rest of us do. <laughs> right, good point. And, you know, I think, I mean, as a, I don't know if it's even a brief aside, but just to add on to it, you know, we, we use the Enneagram a lot to help people understand themselves, have a shortcut to self-understanding so that they can improve their communication. But, you know, you can easily weaponize it. Mm-hmm. You can you can weaponize those insights about others to to create shame. Well, do something I should never do, but I'm gonna I'm gonna disagree with you here, Howie. I, I actually think it's a slippery slope. I mean, I know you were sort of joking, and it's easy to say, but I think it is a slippery slope to go. There are some people who should be shamed because here's what we know: shame does not change behavior. It doesn't. Mm. At at best, it hides behavior, but it doesn't change behavior. And so even when we look at people that we disagree with completely, that we think are doing damage in the world, that we think are evil, if we approach them in any way that elicits shame about that, all we are – and we do that all the time. We're doing that around vaccines. We're doing that around politics. We're doing that around like everything – when we do that, all it does, and all of the research shows us, it solidifies them in their position. And all we care about is moving people in a way that ups their game. So I would say, like, even the people like who you kind of think they should feel shame, I'm going to argue that all the more so, these are the people that we have to be future focused and stay away from shame as much as possible. Wow. Yeah. And I, and now can I sit kind of between both of you, <laughs> the, the mediator that I am? Um, I, Cause I kind of uh, sit in the middle of that where I don't know that shame has to be manufactured. I think it's a human response to or, uh, a human response. I almost think of it like a self writing mechanism. So like if I work with clients who, um, have behavior that they're wanting to change or really take a deep look at, then, and we do that work really underneath a lot of that, we, we dig into shame. Ooh, like it's not something yeah. that I think has been given to them, imposed on them or manufactured in some way, but it's there and it's wreaking havoc. And so I, you know, so I, I think we have to be able to talk about it, especially for thinking if we're doing change work like all of us are, how does shame uh, creep up? I mean, I think a lot of times we just live with it, like a big kind of ghost that hangs around. This podcast is getting good. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, 100%. I agree with you, Shelly. I, I, I don't think it's something to sweep under the rug. And, I, and I'll tell you, like, what I've noticed is the people I most want to be in conversation with are people who make me feel normal for the stuff I feel shame about. Mm, like yes. those are the people I'm like, yeah, like now mm. I feel like trust safe and seen and like trust. Yeah. Trust is a great word, Chad. And now I feel that trust. And now I can engage in a conversation with you about, about that stuff. But I think to be unafraid of going to those places is really powerful. I agree with you. Yeah. And I think if you're in any leadership position, you cannot be, as effective as you could be if you're avoiding these conversations around change, shame, behavior, like it's all connected. And so that's why I'm really I'm uh, excited about what you all are doing. So let's let's move to the step, step three. three, find the hidden opportunity. So talk about that a little bit. Howie, you want to take opportunity? Sure. Um, I, I, so I just want to say that... Um, you know, we don't, we don't, we don't have to go into the depths of, of shame, but what you just saw was kind of how we wrote the book. Like, like, you know, Peter, you're like, well, I shouldn't do this. But in fact, like, that's all we did. We were like, but that's not right. Or I don't believe that. Or what do you think of that? Like, if we were still writing, this would be like a three hour conversation until we came yes. to something. Yeah, it sounds like I a great it. dialectic. Yeah. yeah so, so you get some, and a good tension. True. Between, you know, like you guys can, can have these conversations like that. That's awesome. Yeah, it's very true. So um, the opportunity is, um, is really to say, so where is there a hidden opportunity 
in or around the problem that can get us to the outcome, the energizing outcome. So now we're returning to the problem, but it's now in the context of achieving something as opposed to just getting rid of something. So for that person on the team who has been, um, you know, argumentative and, and talking over people and, and creating all these bad vibes. And if that's the problem and the outcome we want is this person to contribute to a high performing team, then we can look and say, well, so first of all, is if this person were off the team, would that solve, the, you know, would that give us the outcome we want? Would that be a high performing team? You know, let's say in this uh, mm. hypothetical scenario, no, everybody else in the team is polite and they don't like to argue and they don't like any sort of conflict. And so they settle for mediocre ideas because they are happier that way. And here's this person who is, yes, annoying and argumentative and arrogant, maybe, but also bold and boldness is what the team needs. So the opportunity here would be, you know, this particular person is presents an opportunity for the team to be both respectful and bold, to have productive conflict that raises everybody's game rather than sweeping things under the rug or just shouting at each other. So who who finds the hidden part of the opportunity? Is that the person initiating the conversation? Is that hmm. done together? Because it seems to me that maybe that's a tricky part of that step is, hmm. is if it's hidden. You know, there's this great cartoon that I've always loved that has uh, a bunch of scientists in the room and one scientist is at the board. And there's this equation that is, you know, a very complicated equation. And then an arrow to another equation, which is a very complicated equation and a result. And there's a step two in the middle. So that the first equation is step one. The final equation is step uh, three with a, you know, result. And then there's an arrow going between the two and it's step two. And it says, then a miracle occurs. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, and the scientists are saying, you know, I have a question about step two. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, of, of all the parts, of all the steps, this was the hardest one for us to nail in, in a book because there's so there's a lot of intuitive stuff here. Mm-hmm. But we managed to come up with uh, some, you know, a, a seven or eight, I can't remember even how many it is now, of, of like very, very common hidden opportunities that or ways of getting at hidden opportunities that show up. One of the things that I'll say is I, I once tried, I was trying to figure something out for myself and I tried to use the process on myself, right? Without someone else, like not a, you can change other people, but you can change yourself. And I went for (laughs) what is the outcome I want and what is the opportunity? And I found I couldn't do it. And I promise you I'm good at it. Mm. Right. But, but this is incredibly helpful to like the reason we talk about allies is you really need someone to think with together. Like I, I, you know, like, I mean, maybe I just come up with ideas as I think with people, but you know, Howie and I, we can talk and he'll ask me a question and it makes me think of something I hadn't thought of before. And, and so having a partner in this process really helps in terms of uncovering the hidden because oftentimes the hidden is our own blind spot that we can't see. But there are also questions you can ask. Like, is there anything good about this person's bad behavior? Mm, like, not, great. not do they have good behaviors? We're not saying, are they also good? We're saying, is there something good specifically about the thing that you are frustrated with? And the example that Howie just gave, you know, this person who's interrupting and is disruptive and et cetera, is bold. And is willing to bring things up that other people aren't willing to bring up, is willing to talk about the elephant in the room. So that's a hidden opportunity. Here's something that's positive about the thing that I think is negative, And how do we use that? So that's just one of a number of ways that you could begin to identify where is there a hidden opportunity. So I, I, you, one of you I mentioned just a little bit ago, kind of the idea, at least it made me think of, is this really... Um, the problem or is it a symptom of the problem? And so, and I, so this step makes me think of systems, like I'm a systems thinker. And so the, the idea of asking different questions, asking better questions, 
leads me to think, okay, if this could there be a hidden opportunity in the system that this bad, quote, bad behavior is a symptom of something sick in the system or something else that we need to kind of go downstream and really take a look at and try to work on. So I don't know if that's this step, but that's what it makes me yeah. think of. Yeah. In fact, when we started working on the manuscript, the way we were thinking about this was, can we find a better problem to solve? Yes. Right? Which, which speaks, and, and we, end, we ended up wanting to, to flip it to something more positive, but, but in a sense, that's what we're looking at. So, you know, one of them is, okay, is this, is this a symptom? Is this, um, you know, can this point us to fixing something so this problem stops and future problems are avoided, right? Or, you know, so, every, you know, if everything's downstream, it's like, you know, the Kaizen uh, assembly line where the, the uh, factory worker who pulls the kill switch gets rewarded rather than mm, penalized, yeah. right? Because, hey, we're all looking for this together. Um, another one that, that I find is almost um, universal is, is there an opportunity for the person to practice emotional courage? Because whenever mm. there, there's, we discover the moment that they're doing X and they, we agree and they agree they should be doing Y, but X is somehow easier in the moment because they get to avoid a feeling or distract themselves from a feeling, whether it's fear, shame, incompetence, boredom, frustration, conflict, right? Mm -hmm. So that in that moment, we can say, you know, what we can help them strengthen that emotional courage, which, which you know, Peter wrote an entire book about before this one called Leading with Emotional Courage, in which the, the, the mantra of the book is, if you are willing to feel everything, you can do anything. So it's almost always when there's a behavioral issue that we're helping somebody with, there is something in that particular moment that if they are willing to feel, they can engage um, with much more agency and freedom. Emotional courage. You're speaking my language. I like that. It's yeah. kind of a different take on emotional intelligence that we hear a lot about. And I think a lot of this does take, uh, well, self-awareness. Uh, let's, and all of it does, it takes partnership and collaboration with the two people. There, it does clearly take this buy-in, which I, you're right. Step one seems really important. Uh, you guys, this is great what you're elucidating. How about what's up with step four? Create a level 10 plan. Oh. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So, so all of this is very interesting and engaging and fun to have a conversation with someone. But it, you know, from our view, when we talk about change or when we talk about up in your game, it, that's a very, very practical thing, right? It's very much about do I do or say something differently? Like, am I moving right. through the world in a different way? And so that's where planning becomes uh, a very important element. And when and and when we think about plan, we think about identifying options and choosing an option from those options, and then deciding you know everything you'd want in the first paragraph of a good newspaper article, like what am I going to do when, why, where, how, you know all of those things we learned in eighth grade uh, writing for paragraph one. That's what you want to do uh, in the plan. And we talk about level ten in terms of what is your confidence level of follow through. So here's what's key about the plan. It doesn't have to work, right? Mm -hmm. We're not going for a perfect plan. We're not even going for a plan that we know is going to work. We're going for follow through. We're going as scientists to experiment. What mm -hmm. am I willing okay. to try that is different than what I've tried beforehand? That's the win. And so when we say a level mm -hmm. 10, we say, what is your confidence level? One to 10 that you will follow through on this plan that we just created, right? Because if, and, and if they, some, a lot of times they'll say 11, but sometimes they'll say five. And then the question is, well, what's the difference between five and 10? Like what would prevent mm. you? What are those five points? What's going to get in the way? And let's solve for that. And maybe we have to lower the task a little bit, or maybe we have to, you know, change a context or change a dynamic, but let's work through that so that you are a hundred percent confident that you will follow through on the action that you're committing to. That's the win. And then we'll be able to come back and look at it and say, did it work? Did it not work? Let's try something else. You know, like we, there's lots of room to play if we're, if we're approaching this like scientists. And I'm assuming that the, the person, the person we're speaking with comes up with that 
that step. Is that, is that true? Yes. hundred percent. So a big piece of uh, a big part of this, the foundation of this, right. Is that people don't resist change. They were just being changed. So in order to be changing themselves, they have to really feel ownership over mm-hmm. the choices that they're making. Now that said, what I will say is it doesn't mean that the person who's helping them can't contribute ideas. Meaning I, I, oftentimes when I'm in the sort of helper role and the partner role, I'll say, I'll, I'll, they'll come up with some ideas and I'll say something like, you know, this might be wrong because it really might be because I don't know because they know, or this might not work, but I'm wondering what you think about this, or would this be something that would be worth putting on? And I'm just as happy with a yes as I am with a no, or just as happy, I should say, with a no as I am with a yes, because that's data. It gives us more information. No, that would never work. That's interesting. Why wouldn't it work? And now we're in a conversation that helps us to understand the nature of the challenge a little bit more clearly. And you do like you market. I see that's so your, your four steps is basically that's how the book is structured for, for those who are considering checking this out. And you do, you talk about uh, nailing the landing and crafting the plan and, and different kinds of ways um, to create uh, the demo for different tasks. Uh, so I, I guess that the, the, the ideal way would be for them to, create something that's measurable, trackable, realistic, all the things for behavioral change, right? Right. And for people to be able to track for themselves, because what, what, mm-hmm. what we're hoping to do in general is not to insert ourselves as the point of accountability, right? We're, we're one, of, one of the principles mm. of change that people need is is ownership. So if they're doing the measurements, so if I'm, if I decide I'm going to run a marathon and I want to train for it, then I'm going to check out every day. Did I do my mileage? Did I eat right? I'm not going to, you know, um, make someone else do that for me. Right. So, (laughs) so the idea that, um, they, they're, they're going to come up with the, the measurements and the measurables and also ways we're going to brainstorm with them about how they can assess how they're doing. So that it's not like, okay, good luck, go off and, and, you know, I'll never see you again. Or, but how will you know if it's working? How will you know if you need to modify? Because as Peter said, the plan doesn't have to work off the bat, but we're not, the goal is not to create a plan that doesn't work. The goal is to be a scientist and continually pay attention to the data so that we can keep tweaking and keep moving towards that energizing outcome. Have you all ever seen a situation where this doesn't work? Like I'm thinking about an organization I work with that, um, and it's been a while and they continue to loop back around to this accountability conversation. And I keep introducing this idea of self accountability. So, you know, I'm just wondering if there's ever situations where this doesn't take, um, in terms of some employees, some people, and then what do you suggest in those situations? The, it, it definitely doesn't work. Uh, sometimes. Um, and, and that's because once we adopt this process, we are letting go of the illusion that we can control the outcomes. Mm-hmm. Like we're letting go of that. We're, we're not like, I, I have a process that works on accountability every single time, right? It's very, very clear. And it's, it's, you know, it's sort of manager driven. Uh, and I, I'll actually share it with you just cause we're opening it up and I'll tell you, it's clear expectations. Let me be super clear about what my expectations are. Clear capability, meaning you are capable of delivering on the expectations. Clear measurement, clear feedback, and clear consequences. If one of those five things is missing, chances are, well, I, let me say it the other way. If people aren't being accountable, if people aren't delivering on their commitments, if people aren't meeting expectations, one of those five things is missing. So that's a, that's, but that's more of a boundary conversation. I mean, some of that is a, let me help you get better conversation. Let me make sure I'm being clear about my expectations. Let me sure that our measurement is clear and feedback is clear. But, but what we're saying is, so I, I think that's important. I think it's important to have a process like that. And most often people fall down on the consequences, organizations fall down on the consequences piece and the expectations yes. piece. They're yep. not super clear about, I was just talking with a Very client fuzzy. who said, yeah, who said, who said to me, this client said to me, I want my marketing person, this is a CEO, I want my head of marketing to understand that I am looking for thunder force marketing focus. 
Thunder Force marketing. I'm like, that sounds great. Sounds like a what super What the hell does hero. Thunder Force mean? Right? You know, like, like I, you know, like you can imagine the head of marketing going, I'm, I'm definitely doing Thunder Force. And they have two totally different ideas of what yeah. that means. And so what's important there is to say, let's unpack like what we mean by that. And let's be clear about the expectations. What, so, so all of that, let's all, let's almost say that all of that precedes or almost sits somewhat separately from this process. This process is now where you're saying, I want to help them meet those expectations. I want to help them, you know, uh, get positive consequences from their delivery. I want them meeting their and exceeding their measurements. And, and in order to do that, at that point, you need that kind of support. And they always might say, sorry, I don't want the help. Right. And then yeah. from an organization standpoint, that's like, okay, I'm, this is what Howie said earlier. I'm willing to give you the help. I really am. But I'm not going to release the boundary. Like I've got expectations and there's consequences. And I'm happy to help you in between. Well, I certainly appreciate it's the a, openness there. It's you know. amazing to me how much leading in a job workplace is like parenting. Uh, <laughs> 100%. 100%. Like, parenting is by far the hardest thing that I've ever done. I mean, yes. I could write a management book. I still can't write. I mean, I've had three kids and, and I'm still parenting. And, you know, the youngest is 14 and the oldest is 19. And I, I'm still like... I in it. Know. You're in it. I don't know. I'm in it. And I still <laughs> throw my hands up and call Howie and go, what do I do? <laughs> well, you said you wrote, a lot you like can parenting. change other people. Not you will. Not you this will is the magic change, formula. Yeah. That's right. right. The, diff- right. the difference great. between our book and parenting books is that our book can, can go on the nonfiction shelf. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah, yeah that's true that's true i mean i'm just thinking about my son who's about to have his braces removed and i'm like okay for the last three years i've been like daniel brush your teeth if you don't brush your teeth and you don't floss i know it's a pain with braces they're gonna the consequence will be they will be rotten and he's like okay like, like your okay straight teeth will be stained not yes. okay yeah like not okay like he's like wait but daniel do you want rotten teeth uh, i don't know whatever like no not whatever like <laughs> yeah so it's this right. i don't know i figured i i don't know last year so our our son graduated high school last year and he's the kind of kid super smart like why do i need to go to school I can Google everything I need. Like, and it was during the pandemic, so it was all online. And so we, the the more we pushed him to do school, the more he was like, eh, "I don't think I want to." And so finally, like, I don't know oh, what yeah. the the flip the the switch flipped for me, where I was like, "Okay, let's figure out what he wants." Shelley asked the magic question. I had to do a little bit what of you want? psychological reverse psychology with him, and it worked. It was like he figured out. Well, what did you do? To, Tell us. What did you ask him? I don't even she remember. Said, what did I say? What do you, we know what we want for you. I, well, oh, you know what it was? Want? I said, we're not invested in you graduating. I don't really care if you graduate. <laughs> what do you want? And that's when he started. It became like the, the push pull kind of got mitigated a little bit and it became more like, oh, 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 I do want to graduate. I do want to, you know, continue on here. So it's, uh, so a little it's a bit beautiful of this... example. It is the, it is that thing about like, you, you didn't give him anything to push against anymore. Yeah. You know, it's no, like this wasn't about us. to take accountability. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so. I really feel the, uh, seriously, I feel an, an energizing, positive, uh, idea driven, very, a lot of specifics from your book. Uh, we were attracted to wanting to have you on. Thanks for making some time. I know you guys are really busy doing a doing whole your book lot. Tour. Yeah, uh, so we are celebrating your book. We'll let you know when this is released, and uh, and we are just going to celebrate it with the world. Thank you. You guys are awesome. This was super, super fun. And there's no way you're old enough to have a kid who's graduating. Very kind of you. Have had him when you were like 14 years old. That's right. We will <laughs> receive that. Yes. <laughs> Here is the big self takeaway. The truth is we are always trying to change others. The issue, how we go about it. 
You should start with yourself when it comes to change. You just shouldn't stop there. We need to remember that when it comes to changing anyone, it's about supporting the change rather than trying to control it or manage it. Remember the alley-oop method. Alley-oop means first step, being an ally. The reason you want another to change is because you care. Think of not only your positive intent, but the other person's. What are their goals? Maybe they want to be heard. Maybe they feel they're being dismissed too often. But remember, before you do anything like empathizing or expressing confidence, you have to ask permission first. So with the positive intent established, keep it going. You don't just want to make the problem go away. The problem is a sign of something larger. The problem may be totally irrelevant to the actual outcome. So keep your focus on the outcome. This diffuses shame and defensiveness and helps us stay calm and be socially engaged and be creative with how we shape the future rather than focusing on the past. Then step three is to look for that hidden opportunity within the conversation. This may be one of the harder parts of the process because it involves several intuitive processes. One of the ways at getting at these hidden opportunities is that you really need to trust the creative process of working with someone else. Having a partner in the process helps us uncover our blind spots. And another question is, Is there anything good in a person's bad behavior? In the end, we need to create some tangible specifics. The idea of creating a 10-level plan helps us with the who, what, when, why, how, and who of the process as we follow through with the plan. But importantly, they remind us the plan doesn't have to work. You just have to be willing to try the new plan. And this part of the process homes in on how realistic or challenging the plan will ultimately be. So thanks for listening this week. If you love this podcast, please give us a like on iTunes, very valuable, or subscribe on Spotify. And if you want to check out more about Peter Bregman and Howie Jacobson's book, You Can Change Other People, check it out in our show notes. 